God, we're uh, comfortable with silence because we know that you fill it and that you're with us and we don't have to invite or hope or even pray that you will come into this space, into this among us-ness, because you're already here. You were here before anyone showed up this morning, and you will be after we all leave. You are the God who is with us in Jesus, and so we thank you, and we praise you, and we honor you. We ask that you would help uh, us to see and to know and to hear and to understand as we open your word together, uh, through your grace, by your grace, uh, impart to us both truth, reality, and your mercy. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing this morning with our study of what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. If you've been with us for the last eight weeks or so, you know that. If you're new with us this morning, you can catch up if you'd like, and I'll do a little catching up along the way. I've titled this series, Living in God's Kingdom, because really, really practically, that's what it's about as a whole, living in God's kingdom. Just prior to his sermon, or just before he went up on a hillside to begin to preach and teach, Jesus announced and he declared, I've said this before, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens has come near. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of the heavens is near. Therefore, Jesus said, repent, which means to change one's thinking, change one's mind, change one's life, think differently, reconsider Think a different way, go a different way, live a different way. All of that sort of wrapped up in that word repent. And I keep repeating this Sunday after Sunday, not because I'm crazy, though some would argue I am, and not because I'm forgetful, though at times I am, uh, but I'm, I do remember that I keep saying this over and over, and I do so because it really is a foundational prelude to all of and every part of Jesus' teaching. On the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a foundational prelude, and therefore, it's really important that we get it, that we understand it, that we embrace it, that we hold it before us, that it's always prelude in our minds. Otherwise, we fail to derive and enjoy the benefits thereof, of repentance, of changing our mind, of changing our perspective, of reconsidering. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus starts with repentance and the nearness of the kingdom of God. And for myself, I am committed to taking Jesus' words seriously, even when they're uncomfortable, which repentance sometimes is, because I really do believe that not only was Jesus healer and miracle worker and good shepherd, but he was also disruptor and son of God and Messiah. He was all of these things, but he was also very much the smartest man who ever lived who understood humanity better than all of the field of psychology, who understood truth and God and the depths of our hearts. He was the smartest man who ever lived. And therefore, we would do well to pay attention to him and to everything he said, even the hard stuff, because it's actually always good stuff. And so when Jesus says to think differently or to change one's mind because the kingdom of God or the reign of God is at hand and available and accessible today, here and now, it just makes sense for us to pay attention. 
So this morning, we're going to look at a section of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, the early part of chapter 6, that I refer to as the private practice section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his private practice teaching. Uh, Normally, when we hear the word private or the phrase, the term private practice, we think of a doctor or a lawyer or a psychotherapist or a counselor or an architect or someone who doesn't work in a company or with other people, who's someone who doesn't work with other practitioners. And that's sort of what Jesus was talking about, sort of, but sort of not. But we'll see uh, more as we get into this, what Jesus is talking about when he calls his followers to private practice. Uh, we're going to get there in a moment. First, let me provide a little bit more overview of the first chapter, uh, chapter 6 in Jesus' sermon, which we took our first step into with John Garcia last week. Verse 1 of chapter 6 is what I'll call an umbrella verse. John rightly included it last Sunday when he adeptly walked us through chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 of Matthew's gospel. And while those verses, 1 through 4, definitely go together with verse 1, and verse 1 applies to them, they also, verse 1 also goes together just as well and ought to be repeated at the beginning of verses 5 through 8 or 5 through 15, and again through at the beginning of verses 16 through 18. It's an umbrella verse that applies to each one of those sections. Jesus doesn't repeat it, but he very easily could. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 1, and then to verses 2 through 4, Chapter 6, verse 1, and then verses 5 through 15, or for this morning, just 5 through 8. And then verse 1, again, is the intro to verses 16 through 18, where Jesus talks about, in this order, giving, praying, and fasting. And so as I read this morning, I begin with verse 1, even though John covered it last week, uh, and then jump to verse 5, where we'll look at uh, the first half of Jesus' section on prayer. Uh, We'll look at the second section next week. Uh, Listen closely now to the Word of God through the Son of God, Jesus said. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Again, so that we hear it. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And when Jesus says your righteousness, he was referring to this specifically understood collection of common acts or practices that were a normal and expected part of Jewish life in that day. And these acts or practices or disciplines, we might call them today, helped a person move toward becoming a so-called righteous one or righteous person. The Hebrew is tzaddik. And it was very much a technical term for the Jewish people of the day. And people who cared, people who, for whom anything mattered, always sought to become one of the righteous ones, to be able to be labeled or identified as known or known as a sadiq, a sadiq. These acts that they did were generally admired. They were respected in Jewish culture. Here at the beginning of chapter 6, Jesus addresses three of the most common of these actions or practices that were considered themselves to be, as you see and hear Jesus saying, righteousness, righteousness, because in that culture, they helped qualify or identify a person as tzaddik, something sort of we don't really have, but which was considered good and noble and admirable and something to strive toward and be looked up to. Someone we would say today who is truly good, and you know some people like that, 
who are just truly sort of seem to be to their core and what they do and the way they live and the decisions they make, the choices they choose, truly good. Back to verse one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward, nothing. That's not the God we imagine, but Jesus says it. No reward from your Father in heaven. Bam, and now verse five. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, truly, truly, amen, amen. They have already received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of the many words they speak. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. And now remember with me for a minute, way back in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter five, Jesus began, blessed are those people. You remember, I've gone over this and again and again too. Blessed are those people, blessed are those people, blessed are those people, the people you wouldn't have expected that Jesus, the Son of God, would say are blessed. Blessed are the meek, blessed are the weak, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are going through hardship, blessed are those who really want the world to be just and right and fair. Maybe because they haven't experienced that themselves, maybe because they see that injustice around them. Blessed are they, blessed are they. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, my followers, my students, my apprentices. Even when, and maybe especially when, you're insulted, when you're persecuted, when you suffer because of me and for my namesake. Yeah, blessed. Blessed are you. You have God's favor, God's richness. His grace is abundant in your life and upon you and around you because that's who and how God is. Yes, you are blessed. They are blessed. You are blessed. And in that blessing, you will be okay. God is with you. God is for you. And then Jesus says specifically to his disciples, to those who have decided to follow him, to learn from him, to apprentice with him, you guys. It was guys at first, and then thankfully some women were added to the mix to round things out. You all are the salt of the earth. You all are the light of the world. Salt of the earth light of the world. You are and you will be, despite, despite your lack of credentials, your lack of education, your lack of pedigree. You are. And then Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law because people were thinking, you're, you're, you're a little off track, bro. And Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law that they so highly revered as a culture, as a people, as a faith, but I came to fulfill it. And we talked a number of weeks ago about the, number, the several ways that Jesus came to fulfill it. And he said, and yet I am here to correct your vision and to take you deeper into God's truth in a way that will absolutely transform you as a person from the inside out. You've been trying to do it from the outside in. We're doing it a new way now, friends, from the inside out. For I tell you, Jesus says, back in chapter five, verse 20, that unless your righteousness, there's that word again, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are considered to be the most righteous people around. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter or experience the kingdom of heaven. You will not. Unless your righteousness or your goodness surpasses the righteousness or the goodness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, unless you are fundamentally different, 
higher in some way, deeper in some other way, you won't enter the kingdom of God. You won't, even though it's so near. Jesus came to offer a new and deeper and truer sort of goodness and good life that went went far beyond the outward religion of the people in their context into a deeper and more beautiful and maybe more eternal space and realm that he spoke about that he called God's kingdom. But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter into that. And then Jesus says, be careful not to practice your righteousness. Verse one, back to verse one in chapter six. Be very careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them because there's no reward in that. It doesn't lead to God's kingdom. It seems like it might, but it doesn't at all. When you pray, Jesus expected his disciples to pray. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. The Greek word is hupokrites, pretty close to English, almost transliterated. And it meant pretender originally. Jesus used it a little bit differently, but it, it meant pretender and it meant actor. Oh, goodness, hypocrites are just playing. Hypocrites are not sincere. They don't mean it. They just want to be seen by others. They want to be on stages, those poor souls. That's all that matters to them. And Jesus says that for such people, they will get what they want. They will get what they're after. Attention from others. But that will be the extent and the end of their reward. If you want and aim to receive praise, the praise of men and women, you can have that. You can get that. But Jesus says that's all you're going to get. That's it. That's all that path ends up with. And you forfeit the praise of God. If a person with their righteous acts or good deeds seeks the praise of people, it will be impossible for that person to seek first the kingdom of God. If a person, especially in one's religious or spiritual actions, seeks the attention of the world, it will be impossible for them to do what Jesus called them to do, invited them to do, to seek first this realm where God reigns. If what a person wants most is the praise of other people, God will let that person have it. God honors our wishes in that way. But that in itself will be idolatry. Because in seeking the praise of other people above all us, one is making other people more important than God in one's life. But there's hope. But there's hope. Jesus offers this twofold remedy to this kind of idolatry. And it goes like this. First, verse six. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He will. He wants to. He desires to. He's eager to. He will. And what a fun play on words Jesus makes there. I don't know if you saw it. The one who is unseen sees. The God who is unseen actually sees. If you really want to benefit from prayer and praying, then do it where others cannot see you where others do not see you, where others will not see you, where others will not even know that you're praying, which sounds a little counterintuitive for some of us who live in the church and practice our faith the way that we practice. 
But Jesus says, no performances, please. I'm actually forbidding them. They're dangerous for your soul. And God will reward you, though, if you follow Jesus' way. You will be rewarded. There will be reward and benefit and blessing of some sort in that because your heart will have become in some way pure and true, in some way that it hasn't been, isn't right now, in the privacy. And then there's the second part of Jesus' remedy to bring one's prayer life into the dominion of God's kingdom. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Have you ever heard someone pray a really good prayer? Not a rhetorical question. Have you ever heard someone pray a really, really good prayer? You thought, that was a good prayer. That was a really good prayer. I'm talking language, big words, long sentences, lots of fluctuation and intonation, like big prayer, good prayer. Can you imagine God hearing this? Oh, great and glorious God of the heavens, mighty and sovereign in every way, whose ontological presence far surpasses the grandest reaches of the galaxies, whose holy splendor and radiance bathe the celestial beings. Make manifest thy profound presence among us mere mortals. Now we beseech thee. Showboating prayer. Jesus says, keep it simple, sinner. You'll do well to keep it simple. The kingdom of God, you remember, belongs to those who in some ways are just like little children. In prayer as well. And in the verses that immediately follow this morning's verses, which we'll look at next Sunday, Jesus, keeps, Jesus himself keeps it simple. He teaches his disciples to pray with little bitty phrases. We'll look at it next week. Simple phrases. If in our fallen humanity, we think that if we pray with a lot of words, a lot of words or a long prayer is somehow more spiritual, and there's that sense among us, or many Christians, or more effective, or that God is more likely to hear or more likely to respond if I pray with a lot of words or big words or complicated words and for a long time, we may be misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus seems to actually be suggesting the opposite, does he not? Keep it simple. It's the pagans actually who pray with a lot of words. Do not be like them. Why? Because it's not necessary. And it risks assuming that what God can, that God can be impressed or even manipulated by our prayers. As if God might say, wow, Leonard, that was an amazing prayer, bro. Well done today. Very impressive. That was really good. You hit it out of the park. Angels, or Astro's reference. You hit it out of the park. Angels, can you, somebody write that down? That's a keeper. No, it doesn't happen. Or the people who tell God long stories in praying. You ever pray with someone like that? As if God doesn't know that person by, you know, God doesn't need a social security number. God knows where they live. God knows what their health is. God knows the condition of their heart. We don't have to tell God those long stories. Maybe if it's helpful for us, okay, God doesn't need it. 
Many Christians today are reluctant to pray out loud or to pray with others or to pray in front of others because we've sort of gotten to this place in our Christian sort of culture where we need to pray in beautiful and flowery language and have enough words and know the right thing to say. And, and so people feel a little intimidated, and I think that breaks God's heart because he just calls for simple simplicity. Please, thank you. I'm sorry. Help. I praise you. Like, these are children's words, aren't they? These are the things that parents begin and want to teach their children from very on, early on. Please, thank you. I need help. I'm sorry. If a tree falls in a forest and there's no one around to hear it, does it make a sound? You've heard that philosophical question before. If a prayer is prayed in the forest and there's no other human beings around to hear it or to hear about it or to know how good it was, does it really count? Does it matter? Of course it does. Sometimes we think maybe those in that kind of praying doesn't count. It's actually that kind of praying that Jesus says really counts. Our human nature and our human tendency for most of us, though, is to want others to know when we do good, noble, upright, or admirable things, or at least for this morning's preacher. For some of us, it's really, really important that other people know and no one else sees or hears our good deeds or that everyone else sees and hears our good deeds. And if they don't, then our inclination is to want to find ways ourselves to let people know. Of course, we're mostly intelligent enough to be circumspect and indirect about that subtle. We post things on social media, some of us. That, wow, I was at this amazing prayer meeting this evening, and I just I spent a long time there. It was amazing. Oh, here's a small picture of my page from this morning's prayer devotional book. Or you know what I'm talking about. Do you know what I'm talking about? Anyone ever done anything like that besides me? Just four of us. <laughs> I have, uh, in some ways and sometimes, thought that I've perfected the art of subtle and indirect attention grasping, but I, I think no one's fooled. People know what I'm doing. People realize what you're doing. Deep down, I think most people realize what's behind the reasons for some of the things we do. But wait, someone says, Jesus said back in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you remember, Shannon, I was paying attention. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, right? That's what Jesus said. Tell everyone, post everything, share everything, talk about it. And the operative phrase for Jesus there is that they may see your good deeds and glorify not you, but your Father in heaven. In contrast, in chapter 6, Jesus warns them about doing one's righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. It's all, maybe 100%, a matter of intent and motive and motivation, the reason behind one's actions. And I don't know about you, but I can't trust myself anymore. I always lean toward wanting people to know about whatever good deed I may do or prayer in my life so that they may think more highly of me. 
confession. I don't know if anyone else has that to confess. But Jesus teaches that the kingdom heart, which he desires to see shaped in us, is all about God's glory and not my glory or your glory. And it's a fine, fine line. It's all dependent on the disposition of one's heart, which is why repentance is not a one-time thing, but something to which we're continually called, reassess your motives, Shannon. Think again, reconsider, change your ways, seek first and only God's glory, and great will be your reward, my reward, our reward. Great then, do we believe that? I do. There's great value in prayer, especially when it's done with all of one's focus on God and God alone. There's great value for ourselves. There's great value for the world. And God's kingdom comes when our sole focus in praying is on the God of the heavens, on the God who is near. When we pray and we are praying for an audience of one and only one. When you pray, do not be like the actors or the pretenders, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows. He already knows what you need before you ask him. Last week that applied to giving, specifically to the needy. Today it, it comes home a little bit to something that can be more private. Jesus is a fan of prayer. And he's a fan of all of these spiritual disciplines or acts of righteousness. It's just the way in which we do them that he's careful and concerned about wants us to realize, invites us into his kingdom, and calls us to reconsider what's going on in here. That God might be glorified and that we might experience his joy and it might be complete. Let's pray together. Help us, God, with the things with which we need help. Forgive us for the things for which we need and will need to be forgiven. Thank you for your mercy. Bring about your kingdom out there in the world, among us in here, and inside each one of us, bring about your reign. Have your way with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.